Welcome. I'm Allison Jacks, Associate Minister here at First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. It's so good to have you with us this morning. And if it's your first time worship, attending worship here at the UUSF, a very special welcome to you. You can find a link to the order of service in our live stream chat, as well as on our website. As part of today's worship service, we will celebrate our high school graduates with a virtual send-off. It's called the bridging ceremony, and there'll be a little more about that later. Our service this morning will explore the subject of class. And being a very classy person, I'm sure Vanessa will have lots of interesting things to share with us. I like to say that worship is a creative and collaborative endeavor, and we are grateful this morning to our worship team, our AV and sound expert, Jonathan Silk, Shuli Ong and Eric Shackelford on our cameras, Joe Chapeau, who is managing our live stream, Leland Jones is our sexton this morning, and our beautiful flowers were presented to us by Carrie Steeler Salazar. We are also always grateful for our organist, Reiko Odelaine, and to Mark Sumner, our choir director, who coordinated this morning's musical offerings. We are joined by singers Brielle Marina Nielsen, Ben Rudiak Gould, and Asher Davidson, and Bill Gans, our pianist. And we want to welcome Linda Enger, who will be offering our testimonial on the proposed eighth principle. We also want to take a moment in gratitude for all of you who, while not here in body, are essential in knitting together the fabric of this community that undergirds Sunday worship. And as we have each Sunday since last March, we begin by lighting this candle, that with the kindling of this flame, we bring your presence and spirit into this room. So let's enter into worship together now, singing our opening hymn, number 331, Life is the Greatest Gift of All. Join me in this invitation to open our ears and our hearts into this song.
I invite you to join me in saying the words of our chalice lighting. They are in your order of service. Please say them with me. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. Hello, I'm Vanessa Southern. I'm the senior minister of this congregation. Welcome, and if you're following along, as Allison said, there's the order of service, which I invite you to look for so that you can see both what we're doing in worship, but also you can see some more about what goes on in the life of this congregation, even as we continue largely remotely. So for instance, this Sunday after worship is our coffee hour, which is a Zoom coffee hour. There's a link in your order of service. I invite you to come, bring your own cup of coffee, but get connected to some other folks, including the opportunity that exists to join a breakout room. There are two different ones that are being offered, one for a discussion of today's service and sermon and another to dive into a discussion of the proposed eighth principle but if you're in the mood just to meet some other folks and chat, there's that opportunity too. Just tell the host who welcomes you where you'd like to be sent. You'll see today that after church at 1 p.m., there's a program available with Tom Gallagher about where our democracy is headed, but there are things further out in the week. If you wanna join our book group this week, but you haven't been able to get hold of the book, Breathe by Imani Perry, I have two copies that I ordered that are available if you can swing by church and pick it up either this afternoon, right after church, or Monday. The book group is Wednesday and Thursday. Consider joining, the book is short, and it's one that our entire denomination is reading together this year. You'll notice Tuesday our racial equity task force is meeting, so feel free to come and join that work and our reflections. You'll see that our annual meeting is coming up on June 6th, but also our budget is being voted on next week after service. You'll see that there are opportunities to serve with the food bank, to meditate early in the morning as a centering in this time, to come find out about Unitarian Universalism, to join our 20s and 30s groups in their hangout or in their reflection time together, and so much more. Please, please feel welcome to join in any and all of it. So that's some of what's going on in this community that I hope will allow us to connect, draw one another more deeply into the conversations we come here seeking and the connections to. And now, I wanted to invite you all to listen deeply to the last, I believe, of the testimonials that we have been doing over the last month as many of you may know, our congregation is in the process of learning about a proposed eighth principle to be added to the seven that exist as the kind of foundational commitments of Unitarian Universalism. The eighth principle reads, we affirm and promote journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and in our institutions. 
Members are voting on this eighth principle and its inclusion or possible inclusion at our annual meeting on June 6th. And today, Linda Enger will be reflecting on her thoughts about this conversation. Linda. You may wonder why this clearly white old lady has been asked to speak about the eighth principle. I hate to admit it, but after more than 50 years as a member of this congregation, I have participated in many changes and observed how the congregation has shifted its thinking. The time has come for all of us to grapple with the difficult issue of racism, and adopting the eighth principle is a first step on this journey. Based on our history, I know this congregation is willing and able to make changes, to recognize our faulty assumptions, and to move towards valuing the contributions of every person. This process can be hard and imperfect, but we've achieved it when we've listened to one another, built awareness of our faulty misconceptions through personal interactions that surprise and enlighten us, and responded to the initiative for change within our midst. As a young new member of this congregation, I was sure that the long established members of the church would not support our upstart young adult group. It was called the Rufus P. Cutler Marching and Chowder and Marching Society. So we were coming from a somewhat challenging position. To test those long established members, we held a spaghetti supper fundraiser and waited to see if, if any of them would show up. To our surprise, every one of the people we had pegged as set in their ways showed up and we learned they were very interesting, willing to have fun and respect, receptive to what we had to say. Many of them became longtime friends. When I worked in the financial district, I complained that I didn't know why the city was spending money to put ramps in the sidewalks for wheelchair users. I never saw anybody in the financial district in a wheelchair. Of course, after the ramps were in place, wheelchairs were everywhere. And I had to admit my ignorance of the problem. This congregation also learned about the limitations we did not see and have made many changes to address them. As a congregation, we have changed slowly and not always smoothly. When I first joined the church, there was a great uproar over whether we would host one of the Black Panther breakfasts that were offered to children in African-American churches. The Black Panthers were feared by many in the congregation, and the vote over whether we would offer our church for a breakfast split the congregation. Many members resigned from the church when the motion passed. A short time later, when we contacted the Black Panthers, they told us there was no way they would offer a breakfast to black children at this lily-white church. 
It was a hard lesson and a confrontation that did not address racism. We can address racism by listening to the people of color in our congregation when they tell us what they need rather than speculating on our own and make, making a misguided attempt. The difference this time is the call to action is coming from within our congregation. I realize that some of us find the wording of the eighth principle awkward and full of wiggle words. Having served on the task force developing our mission and vision statements, I can, I can assure you that crafting the wording for statements like these is a painful and nearly impossible task. Don't worry about the wording. It is the concept that is important. We need to adopt the eighth principle in order to state clearly that we are willing to learn and change, just as we have in the past. Thank you, Linda. So let's use this time to invite ourselves more deeply into the spirit of this hour with our meditation on breathing as a way in. If you're new and unfamiliar, the words are printed. There are multiple parts. You can listen and then just sing along, choosing the part that is best for you and losing yourself in it for a little while. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in, I breathe in peace. When I breathe out, I breathe out love. When I breathe in. Please join me in reciting our covenant found in our order of service, followed by our sung doxology. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth and freedom, and to help one another.
Today we celebrate our six high school graduates with a bridging ceremony. For those not familiar with the bridging ceremony, it is a ritual to recognize the transition, the, the bridge from youth to young adulthood. For our graduates, this is a time of excitement and anticipation as they prepare for the next chapter of their lives. To our graduates, we are grateful for your presence in our community and your participation in our Sunday School program. We hope some of what we had to teach you will serve you as you make your way and know that we have learned so much from you, especially for all who have enjoyed those latkes you prepared for the Hanukkah Chapel over the years. No matter where life takes you, you have a home here, a sanctuary, a place of learning and exploration, a place of connection, friendship, ritual, and spirit, and a Unitarian Universalist young adult community that is eager to welcome you and support you here at UUSF and across the country. Now, while we wish we could celebrate with you here in the sanctuary, we offer this video celebration with words from our, young, uh, our lead youth advisor, Audrey McDougall, followed by a photo montage of our graduates. On behalf of the ministers, members, and friends of this community, we extend our heartfelt blessings to you. Good morning, my name is Audrey, and I'm the lead teacher of the YRUU youth group. And I'd like to share a few thoughts about the youth who are bridging today. Uh, these were the first youth that I met when I started at UUSF six years ago. And I've been lucky enough to be a part of their religious education for most of that time. During classes such as Neighboring Faiths and Our Whole Lives, um, and most recently in the youth group, I've watched them develop their personal values and explore some of the big questions about faith and relationships and even mortality. Um, and they did it all while navigating challenges of adolescence and a global pandemic. They're truly remarkable individuals and I'm happy to be celebrating them today. To the Bridgers, I feel so humbled to have been a part of your spiritual development. I want to thank each of you for the unique gifts that you've brought to our classes over the years. First, to Grace. I appreciate your positivity and your creative energy and your thoughtful perceptiveness. You're always observing and listening to everyone before sharing insights or asking questions. To Maddie, I appreciate your leadership and the honest strength of your voice in our conversations, especially when standing up for others. To Eli, I admire your ability to invite dialogue and share, communicate from the heart um, and model for others the importance of being vulnerable. To Quincy, I admire your adaptability, your persistence, and definitely your sense of humor 
which you brought to our classes and which helped us bond even more. And to Amaya, I appreciate your warmth and your optimism and your ability to connect with others even in such a short time. And finally, to Chris, I admire your commitment to this group, your openness to new experiences, and your consistent kindness to everyone, even when they were always volunteering you to go first for everything. So I want you all to know that you really have impacted my life and I, you make me hopeful for the future. Even with the issues and the divisiveness that we face in our society today, I know that you're gonna go off and do amazing things. I've watched you navigate the challenges of the past six years with grace and respect for one another. It's a testament to your resilience and to the dedication of your families. I'm so glad we got to share our joys, support each other in our sorrows, and create traditions together, especially those that involve food or lighting things on fire. And I can't wait to see who you become as young adults. I hope you know that I, along with your other teachers and youth advisors, will always be rooting for you, and UUSF will always be here as a home for you. Congratulations.
I just want to say that I bear a particular connection and affection for this class of Bridgers. You were the people who I entrusted my daughter to when we moved here four years ago, the place I brought her to, crossing my fingers that she would find her tribe. And you all met her with warmth and kindness and community that has made it a safe harbor. I knew that riding home from one of the very first youth groups when, or then I guess it was coming of age actually, when Lila told me about the covenant you negotiated that day, how when you were reflecting on a number of things, but the one that sticks with me most is reflecting on what would be done if someone broke the covenant. They'd be called on it, they'd be asked to do some community service, and then Lila said, laughing hysterically, then someone proposed shunning, and despite all of the youth advisors' attempts <laughs> to dissuade you all, you decided that shunning would be a final piece of your covenant. The hilarity, the joy, the seriousness, the love with which you met and bonded has been a place of safe harbor for my family, I hope for each of you. And so know that you have, as Allison said, as Audrey said, as all of us would say, always a safe harbor of people here who love you and are so excited to welcome you back and see you and hear about your adventures. So please accept a huge 300 member congregational hug and blessings on your journey. The music this morning that continues is a wide array, all speaking to the larger theme of the morning. do anywhere maybe we make a deal maybe together we can get somewhere any place is better starting from zero got nothing to lose maybe we'll make something and me myself I got nothing to prove you got a fast car I got a plan to get us out of here I've been working at the convenience store Managed to save just a little bit of money Won't have to drive too far Just cross the border and into the city You and I can both get jobs Finally see what it means to be living See, my old man's got a problem Lives with the bottle, that's the way it is. He says his body's too old for working. Says his body's too young to look like his. My mama took off and left him. She wanted more than life than he could give. I said, somebody's got to take care of him. So I quit school and that's what I did. fly away we gotta make a decision leave tonight live and die this way 
Cause I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. Speeds of fast, I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. cruising to entertain ourselves you still ain't got a job and I work in the market as a checkout boy I know things will get better you'll find work and I'll get promoted we'll move out of the shelter buy a big house and live in the suburbs cuz I remember when we were driving Driving in your car, speed so fast I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. I got a job that pays all our bills. You stay out drinking late at the bar. More of your friends than you do of your kids. I'd always hope for better. But maybe together, you and me, we'd find it. I got no plans, I ain't going nowhere. So take a fast car and keep on driving. Cause I remember when we were driving. Driving in your car, speed so fast I felt like I was drunk. City lights lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I, I had a feeling that I belonged. I, I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. Fast enough so you can fly away. You gotta make a decision. Leave tonight or live and die this way. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong today in order, honor of four such places of suffering and struggle. We ring our gong first as we have since July of 2019 for those lives held and those lives lost in federal custody in our detention camps. For the mounting trauma to children separated from their families, for all people held without charges in less than transparent or humane circumstances, 
in this repeat of some of the most shameful chapters in our nation and our world's history of xenophobia, racism, and greed. We ring our gong seven times for this week of days in which human dignity has been dismissed and our responsibility for that as citizens of this country rings out clear. We ring our gong once for the losses due to COVID this week. This last week, 60,151 people died of COVID-19 globally. We hold in our heart all of these losses, all who have lost people they loved dearly, and all who are still vulnerable to the disease. We hold in our hearts those nations where medical care is taxed to the brink of its abilities and with devastating consequences. Today, we ring our gong in memory of George Floyd, murdered on May 25th, 2020. In his name and the names of countless others killed by the police, we commit ourselves to the work of justice, which in the words of Reverend William Barber, demands systemic and enduring transformation. We ring our gong nine times this morning. So much to remember and so much to hold. May we keep those we have named and their loved ones in our thoughts and in our prayers. And may we ease the tide of suffering this coming week, however so we can. I'd invite us to breathe, feel the chair against your back or the floor under your feet. 
air against your skin. Cast your eyes down or just soften your gaze. Again, breathe deep into your lungs and out slowly. Be here now. And let's begin our time of meditation and prayer with some time in shared silence. Letting our hearts, letting our minds go where they might or just deepening in presence to body and breath. Here we gather. Here we gather ourselves on the cusp of one week into another. Here we gather ourselves just emerging from the storm cloud of pandemic, lockdown and fear and unknowing gradually, gradually letting new habits or old ones, I guess. Be invited back in to heart and mind, indulging the urge to hug and to hold and to tusk, tuck a mask into our pocket and breathe the outdoor air unencumbered. Here we gather and regather ourselves as the world still struggles, the unvaccinated, the variants, the realities of global inequity. But more than that too, ancient lands and old wars renewed, mortar and lives lost in crumbling concrete and late this week, a fragile peace. Here we gather and regather ourselves with our own private joys and sorrows. No 
moratorium on suffering. The beautiful and the hardest brushstrokes of life. All of this, part of the landscape painted this last week, just this last one. Here we stand, gathered and regathered, part of the larger landscapes of human triumph and struggle. We ask that we might have a heart to see things as they are, not that old illusion of one person holding and hoping and hurting, but one person bound in this world of holding and hoping and hurting. Not one person whose destiny is separate or distinct or alone, but part of a human community capable of holding one another through all of it. called to live, to eliminate suffering where we can, to celebrate the good news together, to find our way through, arms linked. All of us strangely, mysteriously bound to one another. A bit like those trees whose roots interlace beneath the surface, weathering storms and sharing water and food and warning of danger and surviving and thriving because of the holding. May it be so for us too, this week and all weeks that we gather and regather. Amen. Well, I was born a coal miner's daughter in a cabin on a hill in Butcher Holler. We were poor, but we had love. That's the one thing that daddy made sure of. Shoveled coal to make poor man's daughter. My daddy worked all night in the Van Leer coal mines. All day long in the field of hoeing corn. Mama rocked the babies at night. Read the Bible by the coal oil light. Everything would start all over come break of morning. Daddy loved and raised eight kids on a miner's pay. Mama scrubbed our clothes on a washboard every day. Why, I've seen her fingers bleed. To complain there was no need. She'd smile in Mama's understanding way. In the summertime, we didn't have shoes to wear. But in wintertime, we'd all get a brand new pair. From
from a mail order catalog Money made from selling a hog Daddy always managed to find the money entitled Elite, Uncovering Classism in Unitarian Universalist History. Mark writes, when I tell fellow Unitarian Universalists that I serve the first parish of Watertown, Massachusetts, they are sometimes surprised and generally respond incredulously with, I never knew there was a UU church there. Unitarian Universalists often assume that UU congregations belong in wealthy suburbs where the grass is greener and the children go to high-achieving schools. This assumption exists alongside a half-defensive, half-optimistic ideology of general diversity, genuine diversity. Until recently, Watertown was an urban, industrial, and populated by working-class immigrants. While it's still densely populated, its proximity to Boston has helped make the real estate market put a Watertown address out of price range for most working class people today. Yet one colleague said that his parishioners would consider Watertown a ghetto. This is a minister who would preach that our faith is for all people and should appeal to diverse populations. No wonder we feel confused. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight to hate all the people your relatives hate you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be taught before it's too late before you are six or seven or eight 
to hate all the people your relatives hate you've got to be carefully taught you've got to be carefully taught one time on a journey upstate headed to see family i saw a falling down shack outside a small town that never seemed to have a lot of economic possibilities. There it was, this shack at the back of an empty parking lot, grass growing up in the dirt, and spray-painted across the old weathered wood was a declaration. Marge and Barb have class. A year later, either Marge and Barb or one of their admirers would add to the public affirmation and are sexy. And then a year after that, the shack was gone. Even then, my reaction to the writing on the walls, but also the fact that it existed, it all spoke to me to our whole bizarre fascination with class in America. I think as Americans, we like to think that we are liberated from the obsession of class that we read about in old English novels or hear about even now people distinguished by some ancient family tree or maybe a particular accent or affiliation with certain institutions or who seem to have some knowledge that's passed down to them from some unpublished handbook of secret handshakes and norms. But we aren't really liberated from such notions. We get schooled in them, much to Ben's song. We get schooled in them young, carefully taught, and often involving, I think, shaming or fear of shame. I remember one of my introductions to this world. I was at a friend's house invited to dinner with her parents, both of whom I recall very clearly were child psychologists, which in retrospect I find ironic. We were all chatting and things seemed a little stiff but cordial when her father, who I was just meeting for the first time that night, looked over at me and said in a scolding and condescending tone, does your family let you eat with your elbows on the table? It was masterful on his part. In one fell swoop, he had pointed out that my elbows were on the table, that this was a capital offense, and that either I admitted that my family didn't care, thereby designating us as less than, or pull my elbows down in shame. My experience is that this is generally how controlling notions like notions around class work. There are norms and you're made to feel wrong for not knowing them or buying into them. You're shamed if you don't meet them. And they are somehow beyond challenge or try to be. It's worth noting that the ones we're talking about today, this one of class in particular, it's just another way that we human beings have found to other one another. Just another one of this category of things that I think we're trying hard to point out where we create a ladder of humanity and we put some folks up on it or other folks down on it. And if we're up, we take pride or false pride in where we are in this constructed ladder and we inflict unnecessary diminishment on those who we think are below us or tell are below us. This other means of social control that's carefully taught. 
told from birth not to challenge our place in whatever that social order is, maybe directed to use our energy to sort of moving up in the construct. Race, of course, works the same way, and the two, class and race, are often layered onto each other. It's brilliant in the way evil can be brilliant. I mean, let's just back up a minute. Seriously? Elbows on the table? There's no reason for that that's logical. I've never flipped a plate off or brought a table down or seen any other ill done by it. It's just a rule to a game that someone made up to see who knows the rules. And to this day, I have to admit, I do put my elbows on the table whenever I want to, and sometimes in silent protest. <laughs> but of course, the larger reality that we're digging just a teeny bit into this morning is so much more insidious than elbows, though sometimes harder to see too. Mark Harris, the retired UU minister and author of the book Elite, Uncovering Classism in Unitarian Universalist History that we read from this morning, he writes, quote, we don't talk about class much in Unitarian Universalism. Class is a hard subject to talk about because many of us grew up believing that America has no class structure or that most everyone is middle class or that even if you are poor, we're all created equal and you too can grow up to be president of the United States, yet in many ways. Class is the most important predictor of what kinds of opportunities someone will have in life. We are stratified financially, socially, and educationally in ways that are predicted in part by class. Moreover, it turns out that struggles around class, identity, and consciousness has been with Unitarianism and Universalism well before our merger into Unitarian Universalism in 1961. It turns out, and here we'll just do a quick sprint, but you can read Mark's book or others to get more detail, that the Unitarians from whom we come in England, contrary to what some of us might have assumed, were very much out of the main, excluded from established power. But coming to the United States, most Unitarians did pretty well for themselves, becoming, in fact, part of the establishment. In fact, Many of our Unitarian forebears were the establishment for a while. We were disproportionately represented in leadership. We were among the wealthy, particularly in places like Boston, by far the majority in the faculty and the students represented at institutions that crowned the American elite like Harvard. Unitarians moved up in the world, you might say. And once there, became the protectors of the status quo. Unitarians, it was pointed out by scholars and people at the time, claimed the worth and dignity of all, but we were also famous in the 19th and early 20th centuries for thinking some, ourselves, more equal and more worthy than others. For instance, there was no seeming contradiction between what was preached in some churches and the fact that many of them sold their church pews so that those who came without money or status, as they told in stories and diaries and journals, were sent packing or 
possibly up to the balcony, where, by the way, the servants and the slaves sat. Our universalist side of the family, and here we're generalizing all around, but that side of the family tended to be a bit different. To be fair and honest, many universalists also did very well for ourselves in early American history. Many were farmers and tradespeople, but often became merchants and very successful ones, or large successful farmers. Somehow, though, in general, this part of our family tree tended to keep the doors to our hearts and our churches and our theology open. Or maybe we should reverse that order. Maybe they kept their theology open and then they kept everything else in line with that theological commitment. Universalists, some scholars summarized, believed the way to heaven was collective, preached a redemption that was a shared venture and believed in a heaven that was an actual place and without class or distinction that they would then begin to live into and emulate here on earth. By contrast, Unitarians like Channing and others believed salvation was an individual journey of self-cultivation. Not everyone, but many. For Unitarians, our own historic experience of being marginalized was somewhat forgotten, it would seem. As we fell into a kind of false pride and a temptation to set ourselves above others. Unitarians, clergy, there are many stories told, refused in many instances to exchange pulpits with their universalist colleagues because the latter's manners were found lacking or their style of preaching lacked evidence of formal education. All this, even though in that example, the two denominations later to be married shared commitment to human dignity and possibility and social change, agendas that were so close, so close we would later merge. So in 1961, when our two denominations merged, this issue was there flowing in the underground water and resistance to merger often brought up some of these issues. Universalists at the Universalist National Memorial Church in Washington, D.C., where I first settled, this had been the cathedral of universalism in America. They still resented the condescension they felt at the hands of Unitarians around merger. That church had been the home to ambassadors and congressmen, and Clara Barton had been a member, and they'd welcomed teachers and social workers and cooks and bus drivers, and they reminded me that at merger, the Unitarians had more members, brought more members to the joining of the two denominations, but the Universalists, they brought more money. Still, they were treated like second-class citizens. There was an arrogance that made universalists wonder about the usefulness of class, let alone the danger of a denomination anchored in any class-centered identity. Mark Harris says, the essential question, to reground us, the essential question is who belongs with us? 
but maybe a related question is who is already us? A June 2015 interim report came about from a commission on appraisal that was asked to look at class in our denomination. And even in that interim report, it's clear that in the interviews that were conducted, that although the very wealthy were a small proportion of who were represented in our denominations and the very poor were a small proportion of who was represented, that there was a full spectrum of class identity represented in our denominations. However, those at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum reported feeling frequently diminished, unseen, and shamed by our community's unexamined norms. If wholeness and beloved community is our goal, and I think we are agreeing increasingly that that is our goal, then we're asking also, I think now, what it means to lean also into this piece of our growth spiritually and as a community. And I bet many of you actually can think of some answers to that question from your own personal experience and observation, and I hope we'll begin to share those stories and observations too as we unhook from these constructs of class and classism, just as we are about race and racism. But let me just name two things that have struck me over the years, just two to get us started thinking. First is just the assumption that sometimes circulates among Unitarian Universalists that you have to have a college or graduate degree to really fit in UU circles. I personally loved this denomination and was clear that the church I was in was a fit for me long before I had anything, even a high school degree. And it would have felt at home no matter where life took my energies or what formal education possibilities were open to me. I still do have a sense that to feel comfortable in Unitarian Universalist community, people probably have to be searching and questioning, but I'm open to rethinking that. But even if just that's true, I think we need to admit that the world is full of questioning minds and hearts, including our own, who for any number of reason may not have college or even high school degrees and that the world is full of people with lots of degrees too who don't really question much at all. So that's an assumption we can name when it shows up in our shared life or the way we talk about ourselves as a community. Second, I think we have to be on the lookout for any assumption we have about what is of value and innate to us. For instance, and I'm going to raise this carefully, I've long been aware that in every church I have ever served or been a member of, there is this underlying assumption that Western classical music is the only music for our churches. It is less so here at UUSF than in any church I have ever served. Here, Mark draws regularly from the wide array of artists that are available to us in the San Francisco art scene, and Mark and Reiko draw widely from a variety of music that fits our services and themes and tone. 
But it makes sense that if our search for truth and meaning takes us from science to poetry to ancient texts to modern novels, that it would take us broadly searching for our inspiration in music too, right? And that, for instance, someone like your minister, your senior minister, loves lots of different kinds of music, including John Coltrane, and I grew up listening to rehearsals of my father's bluegrass band, and there's music too that has deeply religious themes. So what would it mean to continue to challenge any notion that there's any music specific category or even spectrum that is church music and everything else somehow off limits? Particularly if it makes someone more home here, more at home. And while I'm on this subject, let me also say this corollary too. I've heard assumptions over the years that certain groups of people want to hear certain kinds of music. And when it's said, it's often rife with cultural and racial and class assumptions about who likes what kinds of music. And those assumptions are almost always wrong and sometimes insulting to boot. So I would suggest Instead, we drop all those categories that have been carefully taught sometimes, and we just try to see one another in these moments, and we just ask with this curious spirit what feeds each of us, and then we be willing to weave that in in all areas of our life, weave that in a little more into what will make this church more home for all of us, and see that as what church is about, church music, church worship, church norms. I think what I'm talking about writ large is just reaching back to that universalist notion of salvation as collective and dig into what it means evermore to live together and make church together based in that. Andy Stanley, who's an evangelical church leader, whose teachings on leadership have a lot of wisdom, he has this great phrase, which maybe I have said to you before. He commands us to be married to mission and date everything else. In our case, we seem to be getting really clear that our mission, I think, is to make and remake ourselves for beloved community. So to be married to that is to use an old metaphor, lay a big welcome table, maybe one where you can feel free to put your elbows down, especially as you lean in to listen to the stories others are sharing. And it may mean that the band can play a whole lot of different kinds of music depending on the night and what it requires, what calls out to spirit. And it means that we delight in all the gorgeous faces gathered around this banquet that we have helped lay out for everyone. For everyone who wanted to find a place here. May it be so.
and our goings, may the light of love, of the largest love possible, shine out from within us, be gracious unto us, and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen.